Hi, everybody. I'm Brian Norcross, and this is podcast number 12 of Hurricane Season 2019, along with meteorologist Luke Doris. Been busy in the tropical weather office. Warp speed the past couple of days. <laughs> yeah. That's the term you used yesterday in your, uh, in your write-up. It's certainly accurate. It's uh, been, been kind of crazy. Well, today on the podcast, we have two great authors who have both written about hurricanes that we're going to talk to. Willie Dry is going to be with us, uh, with us, and Willie has an updated version of his book out. It's Storm of the Century, Labor Day Hurricane of 1935. And whenever you talk about strong hurricanes, that hurricane is part of the conversation. And uh, Willie's book is fantastic. Uh, I've read the updated book, and and you agree, right? It's uh, it is. You know, when I, I'm not a great reader, I'm a slow reader, uh-huh. and I have poor reader comprehension. Um, but when and a lot of times I look at books, I go, "Ooh, it's too much work." Willie's book is fantastic. I can't hardly put it down. And it's not just about hurricanes either. It's a snapshot. He does such a brilliant job of taking you back to the keys and the people of and what it was like in the time and setting the table. And it's just it's wonderful. So it's as much about history as it is about the hurricane. And he just he does an incredible job. Yeah, it's of kind of kind of kind of a novel, almost a novel kind of quality about the most in one of the most incredible storms ever. Certainly the Atlantic hurricane, the record book that was the strongest at landfall. As a matter of fact, the lowest pressure ever recorded on the earth at landfall was in the Great Liberty Hurricane of 1935. And it's especially appropriate that we talk about this since we just went through Hurricane Dorian, which, of course, was another exceptionally intense storm. We'll compare what we know about the two of them. So we'll find out what's in the new uh, version of Willie's book coming up here in just a moment. And then we're going to talk with Les Stanford, who wrote another of my favorite all-time kind of weather-adjacent books. It's not really about weather, but it's called Last Train to Paradise. And it's a story of the Herculean task of building the incredible project that was the railroad from Miami to Key West uh, over 100 years ago now, 115 years ago or so, when they started that. And that story, of course, is intertwined with Willie's story because Willie's story uh, of the 1935 hurricane was the end of the railroad. But the railroad story also involved three other hurricanes, which made the whole task of of building this railroad over the ocean even more incredible. And they hit in 1906, 1909, and 1910. And we're going to talk to Les about that. We're recording this podcast on Wednesday, September 18th, 2019. If you're listening at some point in the future, you've got to tune in to Local 10 here in South Florida or check the Max Tracker app or the Local 10 weather app for any current information. And this podcast today is brought to you by the folks at Dade County Federal Credit Union, where they care about you and your family. Stay safe and worry-free this hurricane season and prepare your home. If you need funds to help you get started, then apply for an FDC FCU signature loan today and get up to $20,000 with rates as low as 6.9% at Dade County Federal Credit Union. Okay, in the tropics uh, yesterday, there was this tropical explosion, which was interesting on, on many levels. One is that there's been talk, uh, you may have noticed, Luke, about the MJO and how mm-hmm. the MJO, if you think of the MJO, is, is something like the lid on a boiling pot of water, right? If you take the lid off, it boils more easily. If you put the lid on, it takes longer for the water to boil because there's more pressure, right? So it's kind of like taking the lid off and things happen more easily. That's the kind of theory of the MJO. And in theory, this very positive, positive for development, MJO has moved over the, the Atlantic tropics or is moving over the Atlantic tropics and Voila, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know. So whether whether that is a cause and effect is another question, but it, it's interesting that there has been that talk about it. Yeah, and it, it, correct me if I'm wrong, but this will linger into October as well and kind of bring possibly a hyperactive or a more active phase as we even get into the new month. Uh, and it certainly looks like it right now. I mean, mm-hmm. we had yesterday two depressions form. Now we have one that's a storm. or uh, Yeah, one was a storm, Imelda. Yeah. Now it has gone back down to tropical depression. We have Because it moved inland. Because it moved inland. It never really was a wind threat, but for Texas, a horrendous flooding threat. I mean, they could yeah. get a foot and a half of rain. 
a very slow mover, too. I think they had uh, some locations over 20 inches already. Already? I haven't heard already. that. But not on the wide scale, you know, two or three feet like we saw in Harvey. Yeah. But, but there's still a significant flood threat, but not at a Harvey level. And then the other one, Jerry. Jerry popped up. Now we have Tropical Storm Jerry. And uh, Floridians seem to have been paying more attention to this one because it is moving generally in the you know toward the west, and we're going to keep our eye on it. Uh, that one looks to pass at the core of it anyway, just north of the northern Leeward Islands, or at least near there. Mm-hmm. The question then becomes how, you know, kind of like with Umberto, when is it going to take that turn north or northeast? Um, and that's what we're monitoring now. Early indication are is that it will uh, turn away. But we'll we'll just have to see because it's you know it's young it's way out there yeah a lot so we're, of time. we're guardedly optimistic that it's going to uh, not be a threat to the Bahamas and Florida mm-hmm. there's reason to think that it's a little closer call for the northeastern Caribbean islands Puerto Rico Virgin Islands um, Barbuda Antigua other islands up there Anguilla so anyway those folks need to watch it pretty closely but the conditions are not ideal for it to, to strengthen quickly so um, well you know we'll, we'll see the, not that we have good understanding of exactly all the mechanisms for making it strengthen but from what we know on a macro level there's dry air there's uh, unfavorable upper level winds uh, ahead of it so it doesn't look like it's going to like totally suddenly spin up into some big super hurricane so anyway we'll keep but obviously everybody nearby needs to keep an eye on that so going back to hurricane dorian and the connection with what we're doing today if you recall the estimate at the time of the hurricane was 185 miles per hour based on what the hurricane hunters were measuring and using the instrument uh, that they use to measure the winds at the ocean surface, which actually looks at the foam at the ocean surface, and they've uh, calibrated that instrument so that they know a certain kind of re- return from the foam uh, equates to a certain wind speed. So that was 185 miles per hour. Uh, pressure in Dorian was 910 millibars. Well, in the 1935 hurricane, the winds by the modern estimate, are also 185 miles per hour, but with a dramatically lower pressure, 892 millibars, the lowest ever measured at landfall anywhere on the Earth, actually. So uh, that's an interesting conundrum. There's a lot of discussion that came out as a result of, of Irma, and then when it was out in the ocean and was estimated at 185. And then with Michael last year, it really ramped up because this instrument is seeing these extreme wind speeds that don't correlate well with what we are estimating at the flight level. So the airplane's flying along at 10,000 feet nominally in a strong storm, and it's measuring the wind. And so nominally, we take 90% of that and estimate that to be the the wind at the surface. Uh, And generally, the winds that are measured at the surface by the ocean foam method generally correlate plus or minus around that area. But in these super strong hurricanes that we've seen the last few years, they haven't been correlating so well. And the question is, uh, is the data from the surface wrong? Is the estimate from the aircraft wrong? What's the story? Remember, we talked to Dr. Jack Bevan about this. Yeah, these high numbers that the SFMR is picking up, they're being tossed out, right? They're not being used. Uh, they're, just, they're, they're flagged. Well, they're flagged. They, some of them are flagged. Some of them are kind of used. And, and so we're going to see. The, you know, they're going to look at Dorian very hard. Remember, the 185 that we're using now is the estimate, operational estimate, not the final word on that. Sure. So over the next few months, they're going to look at this very hard. But the... Work by the Hurricane Research Division under this program called HFIP. It's the Hurricane Forecast Improvement uh, Project. That, or is it program? It's the Hurricane Forecast Improvement Project. Uh, that uh, is is kind of under the auspices of the National Hurricane Center, but it's a, f- a government-funded research project to improve hurricane forecasts. And they're taking on the task of trying to sort out what these extreme measurements that they're finding with the SFMR, that's the ocean foam measuring system, uh, are, are telling us in real life. So, and they think that's going to take a couple of years. Mm-hmm. So it's going to be interesting to see how they analyze Dorian in the end.
Yeah, and what that will mean when we look back at old hurricanes, right? Exactly. What does that hurricanes. mean for Andrew? What does that mean? Now, we didn't. We don't have SFMR from Andrew, sure. but we do have SFMR for storms going back for a number of years. So, yes, the, it, it may mean readjusting, Michael, uh, may mean readjusting uh, uh, Irma when it was out in the Atlantic, uh, and some of these observations were thrown out if they're determined to be valid. Mm -hmm. So, interesting. It's all very... Interesting. Okay, so uh, with all that in mind, and and a reminder that that the storm we're talking about, the 1935 hurricane, uh, comes in as number one in terms of landfalling hurricanes in the United States at, with 185 miles per hour that made landfall in the southern part of the Upper Keys uh, on Labor Day in 1935. And the guy who's uh, written the book on it that I, I think is the the best story, although there are some the really good stories out there on the 1935 hurricane. It was such an epic and amazing and uh, important event to, for people, and there are so many good records about it. Anyway, his name is Willie Dry. Willie is now a resident of uh, North Carolina, but he spent a lot of time in the Florida Keys and, and here in South Florida. Uh, Willie, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Brian. Thank you for having me. And uh, how you doing, Luke? Good to talk to you again. Yes, sir. Pleasure to have you back. And uh, Willie, we just love the new version of Storm of the Century. I felt like I was reading the story for the first time. And what prompted you to retell the story and come out with a new version after what is it, sixteen about sixteen years? Uh, the first version came out. <clears throat> In O2, and uh, actually it came out, you mentioned Les Standiford a moment earlier, and uh, came out roughly about the same time uh, Last Train to Paradise did, and I've read that book, and, and I'm in envious of you talking to Les in a few minutes. Uh, it's, it's a great book. Um, what prompted me to, uh, my agent and I, to, to try to get a deal to write a new book is that uh, Storm of the Century had been out of print for some time. Um <clears throat> And uh, when I would go down to the Keys, um, I would often stop in at Hooked on Books, a little bookstore in Isla Mirada owned by Kathy Keller. And every time I went in there, Kathy was asking me, "Are you? is there going to be a new storm? Is there going to be a new storm? She's, I have people coming in, you know, at least uh, two or three a month asking for copies of it. And after I heard that a few times, I got to thinking, um, you know, gee, maybe, maybe, maybe we should take a shot at this. And and I had also come across a little more new information, and there had been some new studies done of the of the Labor Day hurricane. So um, I talked to my agent, Jean Fredericks, up in Connecticut, and she was willing to give it a shot. And so we contacted National Geographic, and they were graciously willing to revert the rights, and uh, Gene found a, a new home for Storm of the Century with Globe Pequot and, uh, in, in Connecticut, and, and it came out. The new edition came out uh, about a, a few weeks ago, back in early August, I believe it was. So that, that, that's, that's what led to the new, you know, to the new edition. And Willie, it's just incredible. I, I very much am enjoying your book, and that's high praise for me because usually, if it's not on television or a podcast, uh, <laughs> you know how these kids are. <laughs> oh man, to get me to crack a book and stay with it is, is difficult. But I love it. I love it. So, have Thank you been you. have you been saving up new facts uh, that you found over the past fifteen years or so? And if you have, what are some of those? Well, there are several. I mentioned earlier um, <clears throat> the new studies of uh, of the Labor Day hurricane. And uh, I want to sort of insert a bookmark here. You were talking about uh, barometric pressure earlier, and I have something, a little anecdote that I want to mention. Um, but some of the, the new facts were the, were the new studies of the Labor Day hurricane, which um, when, when the book came out in 2002, uh, the maximum winds were estimated, maximum sustained winds were estimated at 160 miles an hour. And the new studies had upped that estimate to 185 miles an hour. So um, I wanted to get the new information about the new storm, you know, the new studies in there. Um, there was also, I came across some new political information. You know, there's, there's a couple of, um, one of the things about this story that attracted it to, to me is uh, there's just so much complexity to it, and there's so many, you know, backstories and, and concurrent stories going on here. 
and one of them is the, the political aspect of it. And um, I was able to come across some new information. I mean, the information had always been there. I just had not come across it when I was researching the original book. You're talking about um, with the Roosevelt administration and the bonus marchers and the election coming up in 1936 right. and, and all of that, right? Right, right. Yeah, yeah. And, and just for the record, um, I mean, I think that Franklin Roosevelt was a good president. Um, a couple of reviewers uh, of the original version, the first version, said that I had a political motive for writing the book. And, and I mean, you, you put your you put your work out there in front of the public, and the public gets to comment, and I'm okay with that. But uh, but my motive for writing the book was just to tell the, the story that the facts presented. And uh, the new information that I came across um, was that there was maybe a little more concern in the Roosevelt camp about the upcoming 1936 election, about his, him being able to win election. You look back, and the 1936 presidential election was just such a landslide. Uh, Franklin Roosevelt carried 46 of the 48 states, I think. And um, <clears throat> so you think, well, how in the world could there have been any doubt about that? Well, in January of 1936, um, a magazine called Literary Digest uh, released the results of their presidential poll. And Literary Digest was a real uh, highly regarded, widely circulated magazine in that era. It had about 10 million subscribers, I think. And they had conducted a presidential preference survey uh, every year for every election since 1916. So they had a 20-year track record uh, going here. And uh, they had correctly predicted the outcome of uh, every election since 1916. Uh, the way that they conducted the election, they sent out ballots to all 10 million of their subscribers, and their subscribers returned them. Um, <clears throat> and in January of 1936, they uh, released the results of their poll, and um, according to Literary Digest readers, it did not look good for President Roosevelt. Uh, he, According to the Literary Digest survey, not only was he going to lose, he was going to lose badly. So um, that survey was released a few months after the hurricane, just as Congress was starting, to, just as a subcommittee uh, or a committee on World War Veterans Affairs headed by um, John Rankin of Mississippi was about to convene. So uh, when Rankin was preparing for uh, these committee hearings to uh, investigate the cause of the hurricane, uh, he was very aware of the Literary Digest poll, and, and I'm sure that it was on his mind because uh, I had um, some attorneys, I hired some attorneys to take a look at some of the transcripts from that hearing, and one of the comments that stays in my mind was one of the, attor the attorneys said that it was clear that he was uh, familiar with the rules of evidence because he so skillfully excluded them or evaded them. So Rankin was in, you know, sort of uh, in the Roosevelt camp because he was a Democrat, uh, from, mm -hmm. although yeah, he was a yeah. Southern Democrat, but he was nevertheless a Democrat. And the Republicans pushed back very hard, but Rankin essentially ran the committee with an iron fist and, and yep. didn't allow the yep. contrary testimony. Yeah, he was, he, he, it was, um, goodness, he, he really did uh, do a, a very care, careful and very thorough job of of uh, gatekeeping as far as the, uh, you know, who he allowed to testify and who he didn't. So, Willie, so, let's, let's, let's talk about the hurricane it, itself, because we just saw what happened in, in the Bahamas with Hurricane Dorian. And when that was happening, it was impossible not to think about the 1935 a hurricane, obviously, the, with with them talking about 185 mile an hour hurricane hitting those islands. There, is it my sense, however, in seeing the video that we've seen and the pictures after the Bahamas hurricane, compared to the descriptions that we have of what happened to people in 1935, that they don't really line up. You know, uh, so would you describe what happened to people and things that were left out in the wind? Now, nothing to do with storm surge, but just left out in the wind. There were people that were clinging to trees and so forth. What just physically happened to them because of the strength of the wind in 1935? 
Well, it was. They're doing generator tests. Ask just the end of my question again, then you okay. just continue, okay? Okay. Okay. All right, so my question was, um, Willie, describe, uh, if you would, what the condition of people and things that were left outside in the wind were after the 1935 hurricane. Well, as I said, it, it, was, it was basically a killing field. Um, anything that the wind picked up at 185 miles an hour became deadly. And the buildings, even the well-constructed buildings um, on, on the islands, and, and the folks who lived on the Keys were very familiar with hurricanes, and they, they built their buildings uh, to withstand uh, fierce storms. But they had never encountered anything like this. Uh, and some of the other buildings that the veterans, the World War One veterans who were in the work camps were staying in, were not so well constructed. And they started coming to pieces early on in the storm. And uh, lumber started flying around, and uh, uh, some of the men were getting skewered. Uh, there was one dramatic story about a, a vet from uh, Maryland, uh, Elmer Kretzberg, who was uh, impaled by, by lumber, and he lived for 24, 36 hours after the hurricane before he died. Um, <clears throat> there was also um, people uh, testified, people said later, that um, the, the skin on the backs of their heads and, and their ears was just kind of blasted off by, by the sandblasting. Yeah, that's and, what I remembered because, you know, that sandblasting and the way it, it took the paint off of uh, cars or something, if mm -hmm. I remember the story, right, which we didn't see in the Endorian. Was, that was the comparison I was, I was wanting to make to, uh, you know, talk about two strong hurricanes hitting islands. But as mm -hmm. I remember the details that were in your book about what the wind and the sand did, uh, you know, it, it didn't seem to be the same that we saw in the video from Dorian, not to take anything away from the incredible events in the Bahamas. Yeah, uh, and, 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 I, and I, I did, I, I saw a couple of similarities as well. Um, I was looking at some photos uh, of the aftermath of Dorian in the Bahamas, and um, it was just total chaos. I mean, there was, there was, the buildings were totally down. There was nothing left standing. It was just... Uh, uh, you couldn't see anything but pieces of lumber scattered, you know, as, as far as the eye could see. And that reminded me of some of the photos that I saw of the veterans camps in the aftermath of... If you would just pick up your story and and just start with the veterans camps. So uh, what was what happened in the veterans camps? Um, the veterans camps were very... Uh, flimsily constructed. Um, the um, the uh, administrators in Washington, the federal administrators, were sending uh, veterans down there just as fast as they could. And there, the the um, the administrators there were were putting up buildings as quickly as they could, and they did not take time a lot of time to properly reinforce them or anchor them down. Um, they knew that these uh, buildings would not withstand even a minimal hurricane, uh, but their plan was to, uh, in the event of a hurricane, to get the men to bring a train down uh, from Miami and get the men out of there. Uh, and so that's why they they didn't worry too much about the um, you know the durability of these shacks that the men lived in. And when the storm, you know, when the storm approached, even long before the worst of the winds got there, um, these things were, were coming to pieces and lumber was flying everywhere and uh, um, people were getting skewered by lumber. Um, roofs were coming off of, uh, there was a few more substantial buildings down there. There was a, a grocery store, beer joint, pool hall kind of operation down on Lower Matacumbi Key. And the roof came off of that fairly early in the storm. Uh, but they were getting, according to some of the people on the ground, they were getting 120-mile-an-hour winds 
uh, well before the worst of the storm got there. These 120-mile-an-hour winds arrived, you know, late afternoon, 4 or 5 o'clock, something like that. Yeah, and the worst of it came in the evening. Yeah, yeah. Um, <clears throat> so, uh, and, and there may be, I mean, my guess is that one difference, one reason why you maybe didn't see some of this stuff in the Bahamas is that, you know, maybe a couple of reasons. Most of the people there were not uh, trying to, uh, get out of the way of the storm, not taking shelter in flimsily constructed buildings. I'm sure that, you know, in the Bahamas, they do know how to build substantial buildings. Now, not much is going to stand up to a sustained 185-mile-an-hour wind. Yeah, what but, I was um, thinking, honestly, I was thinking more about the the uh, descriptions of things being sandblasted, mm-hmm, uh, you know, mm-hmm. in 1935 with the skin on people and uh, the paint on cars and and things like that 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 we didn't see in the Bahamas. Again, I don't want to take anything away from what happened in Dorian. It's just the the Keys hurricane kind of stands stands separate in my mm-hmm. mind uh, based mm-hmm. on the the um, you know experience of the people and the reports that we have. Yeah, and it, it was it was sanding the paint off of boats also. Yeah, you know, wood wooden boats were a lot more. Well, wooden boats were the only the only thing built in those days, and they would of course been painted. and And some of the boats that uh, stood up to the storm uh, had the had the paint sandblasted off of them. Um, Ivor Olson, the fisherman at uh, Long Key, who who is credited with uh, recording the the minimum barometric pressure that you mentioned early earlier 892 millibars uh, 26.35 inches he was in a boat um and he was a smart guy he um he, he he knew or he calculated which direction the wind would be coming from and he uh positioned his boat on a dock and and pointed the nose of it into the direction of the where he thought the wind was coming from and and tied it down very securely and he had a barometer with him and and uh the the um, barometer actually went lower than than the lowest reading on his barometer, um, but he he kept uh, he held on to the barometer and he, uh, he he kept marking the point you know as it kept descending he marked it with a put a scratch in in, in the casing with a nail yeah and then they tested it afterward to mm-hmm. understand what that scratch was it was very accurate too is is incredibly proven to be a very accurate barometer yeah. so uh, yeah. obviously this was just an unbelievable windstorm, Willie, but uh, the storm surge, of course, was incredible as well. And, you know, I feel like this storm has a moment where the storm surge uh, makes such an impact that the storm is remembered as much for the surge as the wind. And a lot of times Mm -hmm. you look back on Cat 5s and, you know, these horrendous storms, and the the wind is typically what people recall. But this, of course, with the rail cars being knocked off, a storm surge uh, certainly uh, stands out with this. So the storm came from the south out of the Florida Straits, uh, but the deadly storm surge did not just come from that direction. Talk about how the storm surge played out and perhaps uh, different than they expected or we would expect today. Well, the um, the worst of the storm surge came ashore uh, just a few minutes after the train, the evacuation train, arrived from Miami. Uh, the intent was to load several hundred veterans onto the train and get them out of there, and the train stopped at a station in Isla Mirada which had already come, you know, had been blown down and, and the occupants of the station had taken refuge in a boxcar parked on a sidetrack. Um, so the director of the camps <clears throat> got into the locomotive with the uh, engineer and they were going to continue southward to uh, to where the camps were and start picking up the men. And around, if I remember correctly, I think it was around 8.20 is when the worst of the storm surge arrived and it arrived with such force that it uh, simply washed, just blew the um, passenger cars off the tracks. And these cars weighed um, roughly 120 tons each. Uh, the locomotive was the only thing left upright. It, the locomotive weighed 160 tons. Um, meanwhile, down at Lower Matacumbi Key, uh, where one of the camps was, we saw a phenomenon that we saw during Hurricane Irma when Tampa Bay uh, emptied, and the, the bizarre sights of, of people uh, walking around on the bottom of Tampa Bay while Hurricane Irma was approaching. 
Well, something similar happened uh, down off of uh, Lower Matacombe Key. The um, the water on the ocean side was was swept away, and uh, completely swept away. <clears throat> and there was uh, when, when the eye arrived, uh, there were some veterans down there who had been taking refuge uh, on and behind uh, a railroad tanker car, which it was which had been uh, parked on a sidetrack there, filled with water. Uh, the thing must have weighed, well, it had to weigh as much or more than the locomotive. Um, after the eye passed, uh, the veterans, and this was this was repeated in many uh, testimonies after the storm, the veterans said that they heard this sound kind of like the rustling of leaves. And they looked out, and uh, the moon, there was a bit of a moon that night, um, and there is a phenomenon, according to what some Coast Guard rescue pilots told me, that they have seen that the, the phosphorus in the foam kicks up in, in a hurricane like this, and you can actually see the, you know, the, the uh, foam a little bit because of that. Anyway, they knew that, that this giant wave was coming back as the eye passed, and um, so 50 or 60 of them, survivors, um, climbed onto this railroad tanker car and, of course, held on for dear life. And the, the storm, the, the, the returning sea slammed into them with uh, Lord knows what kind of force. Um, a lot of them were swept away like that, even though they couldn't, you know, they were holding on to this immovable uh, railroad tanker car. They could not withstand this force of the uh, of this returning seawater, and they were carried away off into the mangroves, and some of them were never seen again. Um, and that that was a very dramatic story about the um, about the, the the storm surge. Yeah, you tell uh, you tell. I mean, this, this is a this is really multiple stories all laid on top of one another. Willie, I need to let you go, but I I want you to tell folks. When, uh, well, first of all, where they can get the book, and you're going to be in Key West, and tell us about that event next week. Uh, yeah, I'll be. Uh, well, the book, uh, of course, you can get it on Amazon. You can get it on in good local bookstores. Uh, the bookstores in Key West are carrying it. Bookstores in Isla Mirada, Florida, are carrying it. I, I imagine that it's in. Uh, I hope it's in a lot of stories in Florida. Uh, and next week, uh, the 26th, which I believe is Thursday night, I'll be in Key West. Doing so this is a, September 26th. Just correct. To, just, to yes, be, next, just in case somebody's listening in the future. September yeah. 26th, yes. September 26th. Um, I will be doing a book signing and presentation uh, for the Key West Art and Historical Society. And uh, we've had real good response uh it, the tickets uh, sold out, so they moved it next door to the Margaritaville Resort. And we're going to be doing it in the ballroom there. So tickets are still available. And one thing, thanks for the opportunity to mention this, uh, we're going, we're hoping to uh, have a bit of a discussion about the Key West effort to provide some relief, Hurricane Dorian relief for the Bahamas. And uh, that will be, that will be, uh, if if things work out, we'll, we're going to use the last, um, 15 or 20 minutes or so of the presentation uh, to talk about that and talk about what people can do to help out because, uh, goodness, those poor folks over there certainly need it. Yes, absolutely. All right, Willie Dry, thank you so much for being on the podcast. It's great to have you here, and we love the updated book and hope everybody that's interested in hurricanes will uh, pick it up, order it on Amazon, or get it however you can. It's called The Storm of the Century, The Labor Day Hurricane of 1935, and it's great. Thank you, Brian and Luke. Thanks for having me, and I uh, really enjoyed talking with you. Yes, sir. Take care, Willie. Thanks, guys. Bye-bye. All right, now let's bring in Les Stanford. Yeah, Les is a prolific writer of all kinds of books, from detective novels to history books, including books centered in Miami and South Florida. But today, we wanted to have Les on to talk about my favorite hurricane tangential book, It's a book that isn't really about hurricanes, but hurricanes are important to the story. It's called Last Train to Paradise, Henry Flagler, and the Spectacular Rise and Fall of the Railroad that Crossed an Ocean. It was an epic engineering project, and hurricanes played a supporting role. Les, welcome to the podcast. Pleasure to be here. So, Les, you've written so many books. I don't know how you do that. 
how do you choose your subjects and how to just settle on the incredible, really, I think, hard-to-believe story of Henry Flagler's project to build a railroad from Miami to Key West? Well, the, the, the fact that I wrote this book, which came out back in 2002, and, you know, I should say this book is in its, I think it's in its 39th printing, just wow. went into, uh, it sells more now than it did when it came out, I'll tell you. The, uh, who knew that this train was going to keep on chugging uh, uh, this long? And uh, I almost didn't write it. My agent came through town back about 2000. I was a writer of mysteries, uh, as you mm-hmm. pointed out. Yes. And uh, he was going to go with his wife, this is at Christmas time of that year, down to Key West. And I said, I hope you're going to drive. And he said, uh, well, we're going to fly because I heard it was a long way down there. I said, well, it's a, something of a drive, but it's beautiful. you got, you got to take that drive down the overseas highway. And, he said, okay, they canceled their plane flight, and they took a car, and they came back for New Year's Eve dinner, and they said, oh, geez, I'm so glad you had us drive down there because, well, it was gorgeous. And then we saw these remnants of bridges, and we found out there used to be a railroad down there, and we found out it got all blown away by this big hurricane in 1935. I said, yeah, everybody down here knows this that story. And he said, but I'm from New York. I've never heard a word of it. And I said, well, I'm glad you took the drive. And he said, but I think you ought to write Uh, Les, can you hear us? Talking about the people from New York don't know the story. So, Les, maybe try talking not quite so close to your phone. Just just uh, give me a count with the, the phone a little farther from your mouth. Let's just see. I've got you on speakerphone now, and it's about a foot or two away. Can All right, try not being on the speakerphone because it's, it's kind of distorted, and I'm trying to figure out where that's coming from. Okay. Let's see. Let's see if I hold on. One well, second. I'll tell you what. Leave it on the speakerphone and move it a little farther from you. Let's try that. Any better about this far from me or no? Uh, maybe very slightly, but try talking right into the the phone. Let me just see how how that compares. I'm going to tell you, I took you off speakerphone, and now I'm holding it up like it was before. Yeah, so that sounds better. All right, like, well, speak up I kind of just... loud, and let me just see what happens when you speak kind of loud. Go one, two, three, four, like that. <laughs> well, uh, uh, so this yeah. fellow, my age. Okay, all right, so good. All right, so that sounds good. So, so, uh, so your story was that your friend from New York said people in New York don't, no, I'm that. from New York. He's this is my agent from New York. He tells me uh, uh, this is a, this is a great story, and I said, "Yeah, everybody down here knows that story." He said, "I'm from New York, and I've never heard a word of it." Uh, and uh, he said, "Then furthermore, I think you ought to write it." I said, "But I'm a novelist." He says, "A good story is a good story." Well, he had me there, and then he says the magic words. Besides, I think I can sell it. <laughs> there you go. That's yeah. That's a good agent. I like that kind of. Yeah. Agent. Well, <laughs> I I find out that uh, in nonfiction, unlike a novel where you spend a year or two out of your life and send it in and hope somebody likes it, you can write up a proposal and find out whether uh, the powers that be think it's something that they can sell or not mm-hmm. ahead of time and. I did that, and lo and behold, I had two publishers fighting over that book, and uh, I said, geez, maybe there's something to this nonfiction stuff. And, well, that's the kind of book I've been writing ever since, yeah. but that is the that was the first one, that story of how that railroad came to be and how the, the uh, worst uh, storm in history up to that point uh, wiped it all away. Uh, the Labor Day hurricane of 1935 we're talking about. Right, sure. So so set the stage now. It's April of 1896. Henry Flagler's Railroad arrives in downtown Miami, which really was the start of the city of Miami, which would yeah. officially be founded that July. But Flagler was already thinking about continuing the railroad to Key West, as I understand it. Now, what was South Florida like south of Miami in 1896, and how are the Keys different from what we know there today? 
Well, uh, I'll tell you what, Brent, there isn't much South Miami uh, uh, to speak of at the time. Even Miami wasn't Miami as we think of it. There were there were a hundred people. Li- there were a hundred people living here, right. and it wasn't even called Miami. It was called Fort Dallas, and uh, there there were a, a few houses on either side of the Miami River, and uh, uh, the the whole idea that the hope of every those few people who lived here was that they could persuade Flagler to bring the railroad from Palm Beach down because that was the only hope they had. You couldn't get here except by boat. And uh, in order to have any hope of developing the area, they needed the railroad. There were no roads. And uh, so uh, the arrival of the railroad meant that there could be a city. And, of course, the people were so happy, the few people who lived here were so happy, they wanted to call the place Flagler right. in his honor. Right. Was the a Flagler big fighter of the name. Yes, there was. <laughs> yeah. He was, a, he was a fairly modest guy and would have none of it. He said, call it after this uh, river, which was uh, a Native American name, uh, the Miami. And uh, that's what the people called it. And, and then the city began to grow after after the establishment of of the railroad and as far as south of miami down there was no homestead to speak of there wasn't anything between here and the and key west but key west was far and away the most important city in all of florida it was a town of about twenty thousand people and compared to uh, Miami with its 100 people and and uh, Jacksonville with its 4000 and Tampa with with 2000 it was it was way uh, miles and miles ahead of any place else it was a very important naval uh, operations center big coaling uh, uh, station for ships that plied the caribbean it was a turtling uh, uh, a place where uh, you know people fished for turtles in a fishing uh, uh, center in a sponge diving area, and there were cigar making uh, that went on there. It was a very important seaport. And uh, But you, again, you couldn't get there except by boat. It was the last part, the last important city in the United States that could only be reached by boat. And I guess one of, yeah. the, one of the most different things between Miami and Key West than what we know today is that there was more water than there is now because part of Flagler's project was to actually make the keys bigger. Well, the the key grew has has been filled in and was filled in uh, after uh, after the railroad got down there. But the whole again, no, I mean I'm the, talking about the keys in in between here in Key West. The well, you know, the amount of the, fill were, that they put in to to okay. when they were building the railroad really oh, changed the character make, of the keys. Sure, to make make for a right of way. We're talking about fly specks of land that were the keys and uh, needed to be built up so that the railroad could have a place to sit in in most of the spots. Those aren't islands; those are sandbars uh, for the most part. And uh, 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 well, well, anyway, there had been talk for oh, I don't know, nearly eighty, ninety years of. It was dream talk, almost like building a putting a McDonald's on the moon. That someday there'll be a, a railroad that will go down the Keys to Key West, but nobody ever really thought it could be done until Flagler built the railroad as far south as Palm Beach and then Miami. And people then began to say, "Well, maybe this particular guy can do it." And I think Flagler began to talk himself into the possibility that he could. He could do this impossible thing. I mean, when you think about it, the idea that you're going to build a railroad over essentially 150 miles of mostly water is a pretty amazing and kind of crazy thing. Just on it the was, surface of it. People, and people made fun of Flagler. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this is a guy, listen, he was no crackpot. He was the co-founder of Standard Oil. He was the partner of John D. Rockefeller in the creation of the most successful corporation in American history up to that time. And it rankled him that people were making fun of his business acumen. And part of uh, his decision to do this was a certain amount of, oh, yeah, 
you think I can't do this? Well, I'll show you. Yeah. I'm, I'm convinced of that. Yes. And, of course, there were any number of engineering challenges, which is which I think, having a kind of an engineering background, is uh, a fascinating part of the story. But there were also mosquitoes and alligators and every kind of critter and insect that we have in the swamps of South Florida and the Keys, and not to mention uh, hurricanes. Did they uh, really were... realize all of that before they set out? Well, of course not, because nobody had ever worked, uh, nobody had ever undertaken any significant engineering uh, uh, project in, in those parts before. So they had no idea what they were getting into. And as you say, three hurricanes struck the right of the project as it was being built. They were relatively mild hurricanes compared to uh, the hurricane of 1935, but they still, uh, the loss of life was significant. The first one uh, cost about the lives of 100 men in 1906. Yeah, so let's let's go to that time. So they start construction south of Homestead, I guess, in 1905. They're they're moving right. south, but they're also building ahead. It's not like they they start and and just go from that point. They're they're actually building farther down. And so 1906 comes along, and in June uh, there was a hurricane in June, but nobody really talks about that storm, even in Miami history. So even though it was technically a hurricane in the record book, I I don't. Uh, think it could have been too significant. But then that October storm comes along, and it's an entirely different kind of hurricane. Category 3 is the modern estimate on it. Uh, it hit on the early morning of October the 18th. So did they know it was coming? What were the circumstances uh, in terms of where the people were? They were sleeping, I guess, that time of day. And, and what, what happened? Well, no. the The uh, forecasting in those days, as you might imagine, was was practically non-existent. The only way they knew a hurricane was coming is if there was a ship that happened to intercept the the, the path of the storm uh, out there in the ocean, and then telegraph news of it to uh, uh, a uh, land station. And, uh, and that would have been case, new in 1906. Even is that was only the beginning of the 20th century that all that that even happened. And it was so it was catch as catch can. Right. And this one, this this uh, took everyone by surprise. And up until this point, the workers were housed on what on floating dormitories. And the reason for that was, uh, as the work progressed down the keys, they just untie the dorms uh, uh, in Homestead and move them on down uh, to Matacumbi, and you know that like that, uh, just to avoid having to build uh, workers' quarters and then either tear them down or uh, abandon them. So they they build these big uh, uh, houseboats, as it were, and then and then untie them and move them along. Well, you had uh, 100 guys uh, aboard one of these uh, huge houseboats. Uh, it was tied off. They're asleep, and all of a sudden the wind comes up. Nobody knows really what's going on, and the next thing they know, this boat is torn loose from its moorings in these shallow waters, out uh, 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 it goes in these shallow waters. It's torn to uh, pieces uh, on the reefs, and uh, and a hundred men drown uh, in in the in the storm. And uh, for Flagler, that was the end of that. From from then on, the men were housed in what were considered to be hurricane-proof quarters built uh, on land. Uh, uh, thereafter. Uh, it was a, a terrible lesson to be learned, but nobody had ever had ever yeah, experienced never, anything like that. Right, right. Nobody had ever tried anything like this before. So you had uh, these workers dead, and and a lot of the track was torn up, right, in that 1906 storm. Was there talk or pressure to give up at that point? And how did they keep the workers working? Because, they, you know, working in the mosquitoes and working in the heat and— we can just imagine what that was like at that time to actually do, be doing that physical labor, you know, in the Florida summertime in the Keys. Well, relatively little track had been laid at, at that point. This was at the very earliest stages of, of construction. So, no, it, it, was, it was a blow, but uh, it was at the outset of the project. So, uh, no, there was no thought whatsoever of stopping. It was... Uh, it was just a matter of uh, we've got to we've got to uh, prepare 
we uh, 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 need to take this more seriously, of course, than what we have, and and we're gonna uh, we're gonna press forward. Ah, okay. So they, they, so they learned about hurricanes in 1906, no doubt, and then kind of unbelievably, they were snake bitten in a way. Uh, two more hurricanes come along: a Cat three in October of. Uh, 1909 is the estimate, and a Cat 4 in October of 1910, which actually went well west of Key West, but was a pretty good storm and uh, affected the railroad project. How did they deal with those storms uh, differently than they had in 1906? Well, they uh, they were aware of what was coming and uh, and batting down the hatches. The, uh, the They were glancing blows compared to uh, there weren't any men uh, uh, floating on on floating dormitories. They got out of there when the uh, there, there was advance warning in those in those cases. And as I say, the uh, the effects were uh, were glancing, so that the 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 effects were serious, but uh, not. Not anywhere near what that first one had been. Yeah, the first one uh, disrupted construction was nearly a year or something, wasn't it? And it was quite a bit of time while they figured out how to move forward in a safer way, as I remember your book. And I, it's, it's been a while since I read the centennial version of your book, so I'm uh, doing a little bit of this from memory. So, okay, in, in, in spite of all this, they get this incredible railroad built. And, and if you go to the... Keys, uh, you'll see the the remnants of it, and you can see the the bridges that stand today. As a matter of fact, the concrete in those bridges is actually stronger uh, than the concrete in the more modern bridges. And I remember when the the current uh, bridges were built. So, uh, tell us the story of of that. You know, how is it that those old bridges stand and seem to be more durable than what we build today? Well, they were over-engineered for one thing. Uh, the Flagler was uh, uh, because I think of the of the early depredations of the storms. He, you know, he had become uh, extremely cautious uh, and uh, uh, over-engineered the bridges. Worked with uh, with William Meredith, the original uh, con- uh, reinforced concrete engineer on the on the project. Uh, to uh, who he, uh, Meredith had had built, uh, he was a pioneer in the process of reinforced concrete. That is, concrete reinforced with uh, iron rebar. Uh, uh, skeleton and there was uh, a skeleton embedded in the concrete and Flagler had uh, 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 imported most of the concrete that was used in the pilings from Germany and uh, with additives that were uh, reputed to be able to withstand the uh, depredations of salt water for a century and so forth. So, so this is sort of well, a secret sauce, right? That, that well, uh, they, well, we don't know exactly out, what that was. Well, see, but they, they found out that, in fact, salt water actually strengthened the concrete uh, <laughs> rather than weakened it. Uh, the, the only effect of, of the salt was that over you know considerable time if the salt worked its way inside the concrete it would deteriorate the iron rebar and so now you have uh, in some of the bridges down by pigeon key a century later finally you have a weakening of the uh, of the uh, rebar uh, material, but uh, gee whiz, nobody was worried about a hundred, <laughs> the hundred year uh, uh, effect at the time this was going in. So, I would say that it uh, withstood uh, what anybody thought was going to be uh, a reasonable period of, of time. Uh, the uh, 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 if you go up to uh, uh, Whitehall where they have quite a remarkable library of, and you see about 25 feet, six uh, shelves high uh, on both sides of, of one of the aisles filled with concrete, nothing but concrete reports, uh, various uh, uh, comparisons of, of kinds of concrete that 
Flagler uh, uh, busied himself at studying and trying to decide which one he was going to use to to make these bridges as strong as they could possibly be. So Whitehall is Flagler's home and now a museum. In, uh, a great repository. In, there are uh, two two principal repositories of the records. The FEC Railroad uh, uh, kept a, a large uh, uh, repository of records, and then Whitehall is the other central uh, storehouse that I was able to uh, access. So, in spite of all the issues, you know the the hurricanes and the, just the monumental feat of of building this, they finished the line. They they actually built a railroad over the ocean for the best part of 150 miles. What was that day like when the first train from Miami rolled into Key West? Well, toward the end, uh, Flagler was getting old. He was 75 when this began. He was 82 when it finished, and his health had begun uh, begun to fail. William Meredith, the original engineer, died of health stress uh, brought on by the rigors of the job. And and Flagler, uh, people began to worry about him. And William Crome, who was the who became the project engineer, gave an interview with uh, reporters and told. Uh, uh, folks, listen, there isn't a man working on this project who wouldn't give a year of his own life to see Mr. Flagler ride his own iron to Key West uh, before he dies. And he made it at age 82, wrote in there in January of 1912, and 10,000 people showed up to welcome him, thrilled to death that that railroad had finally come to Key West because they considered it was going to change everything in in Key West as far as they were concerned. There was a, a, a... a uh, brass band, of course, showed up, and uh, a children's choir uh, serenaded him. And his line was to Joe Parrott, the manager of the railroad, "Well, I can hear the children, but I cannot see them." And the other thing he said to Parrott uh, as he was leaving the reviewing stand was, "Now I can die happy." He had uh, accomplished uh, this thing that everybody said was impossible, and which he thought would uh, would be a great boon to the state of Florida uh, and to development in, in the state of Florida. And he considered the, it the crowning achievement of, of his career down here. Yeah, it was kind of, kind of a, a moonshot kind of thing. So from 1912 to 1935, I guess the train just became part of life in the Keys, having a train? Well, it did. Uh, sad to say... Uh, the Navy uh, denied Flagler. The Flagler, the whole reason, uh, the whole economic reason behind this, was that Flagler intended to dredge Deepwater Port in Key West because the the Panama Canal uh, had finally been authorized, and that was going to make Key West the closest U.S. port to the eastern terminus of the Panama Canal. And Flagler's idea was that ships would have to put in there to take on more coal, and they would offload a good part of their uh, their cargo there onto his trains, and off it would go to, for dissemination throughout the U.S. Two things happened. The uh, Navy denied him the permission to build a commercial port in Key West, claiming that it would interfere with naval operations. He blamed this on the uh, uh, interference uh, of Theodore Roosevelt, who'd been a big opponent of Standard Oil for years and years and years, and the trust buster that he was. And the second thing was that ships began uh, to uh, retrofit from coal fuel to oil. And oil, they could take on enough oil in Panama to sail pretty much anywhere they wanted to, up and down the eastern seaboard of the United States. They didn't have to stop in Key West. The long and short of it was that the, the dream of Key West being an important uh, commercial port uh, uh, died. Uh, and so the commercial importance of the railroad to Key West uh, was obviated. However, people, passengers, loved the train. It was, you couldn't even see the tracks when you're in the passenger uh yeah, we'd love it today. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, okay, so just start with the passengers loved it. The the so it was no uh, freight uh, was not moving on this line whatsoever, but passengers loved this train. 
It was like riding a, a magic carpet above the ocean. You couldn't see the tracks when you were in the cars. All you could see was water, the ocean to the left of you and the uh, golf to the right of you. And it was said that you could see dolphins uh, racing the shadows of the train as it went south to Key West. The train would uh, stop uh, to, at the drawbridges to let uh, ship traffic pass, uh, and people would go out on the uh, balconies and toss a, uh, a line into the water to fish while they, you know, for 15 or 20 minutes. It was one of the most popular uh, passenger trains on Earth. And it was called uh, the, uh, uh, you could get on a train in Penn Station in uh, New York on a Tuesday. Uh, and on Saturday afternoon, you would find yourself in that same Pullman car Riding along the rails of Cuba, uh, you would have boarded the Havana Special in uh, in Penn Station, taken the train all the way to Key West, taken a steamer uh, a ferry across the Florida Straits to Havana overnight, and your Pullman car would have uh, gone in the belly of that ferry and then hooked up to a Cuban uh, engine uh, uh the next morning and off you'd go for a tour of the island of Cuba on that same Pullman car. What an incredible trip. Can't, I can't imagine. That'd just be uh, so awesome. Think of, think of it. Yeah, yeah. And after the storm, uh, the Labor Day storm in 35, with miles of tracks all ripped up, the, the train cars and everything that were knocked over, was it simply money that kept them from rebuilding, or by that time were trains old-fashioned and they just thought that cars would be better? Well, by this time, we were in the midst of the Great Depression, right? Uh, the, there was no freight, and, and freight is where the money is in rail. There's, there's no money to speak of in, in passenger traffic, except in the most dense corridors uh, of the Northeast uh, and whatnot. So uh, while passengers loved that train, it wasn't really making any money for the FEC, so the, it really would have been foolhardy to try and rebuild that track. Now, the big bridges, over-engineered <laughs> as they were by, by Flagler, had not been touched by the storm. They were unfazed. It was the track on land that had been torn up uh, by the storm. And uh, it was a relatively easy process to – it was it was seen that it would be a relatively easy process to regrade uh, the land right-of-way into a highway right-of-way. And the monumental task of redoing the bridges was – well, the bridges were already there. All they had to do was lay, uh, put uh, blacktop on top of the uh, uh, the uh, pylons that were already in the ocean. The only place where it was tricky was over the Bahia Honda span, where there was a it was the one typical steel railroad bridge in the whole 153 mile uh, line. Yes, and, and I remember that well. They put them on the put it on the top. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it would only there was only wide enough for one way traffic. Right. And they said, "What are we going to do? We can't have somebody down there, a flagman, mm-hmm. on this road." And a guy said, "This this bridge is so strong, we can lay a two lane blacktop railroad or highway on top of that railroad bridge." And that's exactly what they did. And you can still see that today if you go down to Bahia Honda Park. You'll, you can still see remnants of that two-lane road <laughs> yeah. laid on top of the railroad bridge. Yeah, so I, I you know, I remember uh, in the 80s when you still drove on a lot of those old bridges before the new seven-mile bridge was built and other new bridges were built, and it was really narrow and really scary uh, driving down that road. But but it was quite an accomplishment by the late 30s, I guess, when they I finally got that up. Took his motorcycle over that Bahia Honda bridge. He said, in a driving rainstorm, about seventy miles an hour. He said it was the most thrilling thing he ever did. Uh, <laughs> okay, so all right, so just start with the story. Um, a friend told me about the motorcycle. Well, well, uh, I, uh, that. That road was something before it got widened in the in the 70s and 80s. A, a pal of mine told me about riding his motorcycle over the original Bahia Honda 
span on top of that uh, that railroad bridge, that two-lane blacktop railroad bridge, and is on his motorcycle at 80 miles an hour in a driving rainstorm. Uh, uh, he said it was the most thrilling thing he'd ever done, and I imagine Flagler being tickled by the whole prospect of it. Uh, not what he had in mind when he built it, but he would have enjoyed that story, I'm yes, sure. I'm sure he would. All right, Les Stanifer, thank you so much. The book is Last Train to Paradise, Henry Flagler and the Spectacular Rise and Fall of the Railroad that Crossed an Ocean. What a story. Les, thanks so much. Hope to have you on again. Thank you for having me. All right, it really is. It's been one of my favorite books for, I don't know, last 15 or more years since I became aware of it. So in Key West, there's a museum dedicated to the Flagler Key West Extension, uh, or the railroad that went to sea, as they called it. It's called Flagler Station at the corner of Margaret and Caroline Street, uh, four blocks off of Duval Street. Check that out. It's terrific. And also Whitehall up in Palm Beach. That's the Flagler Mansion, if you haven't been there. It's fascinating. Uh, Henry Flagler was an amazing guy. And at mile marker 82 in Alamorada, which is very near the memorial for the victims of the 1935 hurricane, and near where the train derailed, actually, in the Labor Day hurricane 84 years ago, is the Florida Keys History and Discovery Center. Stop by there on your drive through the Middle and Upper Keys. If you're interested in Keys history, it's, uh, it's a great place as well. Now, next week, we're going to have uh, Matt uh, Onderlindy from the National Hurricane Center and the website called weathernerds.org. Matt's one of the whiz kids at the NHC, and it'll be great to meet him, hear about his website, and uh, hear about uh, all the new technology that that he's working with. If you have anything you'd like us to talk about, you can write to us at weatherpod at wplg.com, like one word, weatherpod at wplg.com. Today's podcast is brought to you by the folks at Dade County Federal Credit Union, where they care about you and your family. Stay safe and worry-free this hurricane season and prepare your home. If you need funds to help you get started, then apply for a DCFCU signature loan today and get up to $20,000 with rates as low as 6.9% at Dade County Federal Credit Union. That's our podcast for this week. We'll look for you next week here for Luke Doris. I'm Brian Norcross at the WPLG Local 10 Podcast Studio in Miami. Have a good week, everybody. Oh,